the time of recording this podcast, there's an election in our nation. And the media have been very good at trying to catch each of the leaders of the political movements in what is called a gotcha moment. They ask a trick question to catch out the candidates in in some stupidity or in some hypocrisy. And it reminds me of Jesus, how people listen to trick him, how they listen to catch him in his words, how they threw gotcha questions at Jesus. Uh, But instead of him being caught out or even answering their questions, he turned it back onto the questioners and basically caught them out in their hypocrisy. I mean, do you remember the time when they asked whether he should pay taxes to Caesar or not? That was a classic gotcha question. If he says yes, well then he's a traitor to Israel. If he says no, well then he's a revolutionary against Rome. Either way, he's got. But do you remember Jesus' answer? He pointed to the image of Caesar on a coin. And he said, give to Caesar the things of Caesar's and to God the things of God. It was a a little statement that was even bigger and more profound than you'd expect because it was one of the very first times in human history where there's been a separation between state and church, between religion and government. But it also speaks of a different topic that I'm going to be talking about today, namely idolatry. Welcome to this podcast from Two Ways Ministries. I'm Philip Jensen. Today I want to draw your attention to the second of the Ten Commandments. It goes, You shall not make for yourself a carved image of or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now notice that there are two elements there. You're not to make and you're not to worship. You're not to make. Uh, don't push this too far, of course. It's about making idols. It's about. It's not just about art. It's not saying you should never make anything artistic. You should never carve anything. But you're not to carve anything to be an idol. You're never to carve anything to worship. Uh, you're never to picture God. For God is not to be pictured. He He speaks. You're to listen. You're to obey. But you don't draw pictures of him, nor are you to make idols of other gods that you would be worshipping as well. Uh, You mustn't push not make too far. Remember when Solomon, in God's instructions, made the house for God in Jerusalem. There's all manner of artwork that is there, the cherubim that sit on the top of the, the, the Ark of the Lord and so forth. It was a very beautiful artistic work but it was not to be worshipped it was not to be an image of God in any way on the other hand of course there's the pharisaic argument that people use whereby they do create idols but they say well I'm not worshipping the idol I'm just worshipping what the idol represents this is a pharisaism because as soon as people start worshipping what the idol represents they start worshipping the idol it's like saying, well, this is a picture, not a, not a carved statue, as if two-dimensional idolatry is somehow acceptable, whereas three-dimensional idolatry is unacceptable. There's all kinds of pharisaic ways in which people 
get around or try to get around the commandment. But you're not to make gods, representatives, representations of gods, things that you will ever worship as gods or as God himself. Because the second part of it is worship. Idols are not the way to relate to God. When God spoke on Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb as it's called, he makes it very clear in Deuteronomy that you did not see anything, you only heard. And that's why we are to never relate to God on the basis of what we see, but on the basis of what we hear. But it's more than that even. You see, idols don't represent God. They misrepresent God. Idols are dumb in both senses of the word. They're lifeless and they're speechless. They're immovable. They're, they're powerless. I don't know what you know of God, but you know nothing of God by looking at an idol. In fact, whatever you think you do know of God, if you've got it from an idol, it's wrong. For idols are a severe misrepresentation of God. An obscene misrepresentation of God, really. Because everything important about God is lacking in an idol. And what is there in an idol is never true of God. You see, the idol doesn't speak. But God speaks. It's by his word that he creates everything. The idol doesn't move. But God is everywhere. The idol has no power, but God is all-powerful. The idol doesn't do anything, but God does everything. The idol doesn't create anything, but God has created all things. The idol doesn't own anything, but God is the owner of all things. The idol never saves anybody, never loves anybody, never promises anything to anybody. But God saves and loves and promises. The idol is not faithful, not merciful, not just, but they are the very character of God. Everything important about God is not true of an idol, and everything that's about an idol is not true of God. Therefore, the idol doesn't in any way represent God, but in every way misrepresents God. People's superstition knows no end. I don't know whether you've ever followed the sports people. They frequently have all kinds of superstitions. You'll see the cricketers and tennis players how they follow certain superstitious practices because they somehow associate their success with having a handkerchief or having particular practices. And I mean, still today, people build temples. I don't know whether you've seen it around our Western civilization, but there's an increasing number of Buddha statues and the like in front lawns and gardens and in in restaurants, etc. And people leaving out fruit for ancestors and having joss sticks and bowing and I mean the whole New Age creation of the pyramids and of of having crystals. And even within the Christian context, you see people bowing in front of statues and, and crossing themselves or lighting candles. It's, it's just part of the nature of religion, of natural religion, of sinful religion.
it's funny, even the secularists are like it. In, in Paris, there's a very important and significant building called the Pantheon. <laughs> it was built as a church in the first place, and then, well, it, it got taken over by the government and then taken over by the church and then the government and the church. It's bounced back and forward, but it's now, it's now a secularist establishment owned and run by the government. But it's kind of funny because it's a, it's a secularist government. But the word is pantheon, which actually means all the gods. And there it is in Paris. But it's established now as to the great men from a grateful nation. That's what it's about. Mind you, what makes people grateful or rather who they are grateful to? I mean, there's not much point being grateful to people who are dead because if you're a real secularist, well, they're dead. They don't know that you're saying thank you to them and there's no point saying thank you to them because, well, they're just dead, aren't they? They're just bones mouldering away. They're just the atoms of our human construction destructing now down to nothingness. But they say the building, magnificent building that it is, has two purposes. Public education, oh, that's a very good purpose, isn't it? And patriotic devotion. Devotion? Why, why a devotion? When I was there, I saw some tourists being ordered out of the building. It was quite a little to-do that took place. The guards were really upset by these young tourists because the tourists were laughing too loudly and the guards made it very clear that this was a sacred space and was not to be treated as a place of like a museum where you could laugh or talk. It was a place that had to be treated with holy reverence. It's a place where dead bodies lie. If you're a Christian, if you're a supernaturalist, I, I guess you'd actually say, well, here is something that... But these aren't. These are secularists. These dead bodies are nothing but atoms. And for some reason, well, idolatry comes in all manners of forms. Sadly, even Christians. Many people say, well, it's not a church unless there's a cross in it or an altar in it. Interestingly, when I was at the cathedral for many years here in Sydney, we've always had a great gospel tradition here, and so there is no cross and there is no altar in the cathedral. But tourists would come, and tourists would look for the cross, they'd look for the altar, they'd ask us questions about it and insist that there was something defective because we didn't have a cross on an altar. They asked about the high altar as if the low altar would not be enough. But of course all we have, like good Protestant Bible-believing Anglicans, was a holy table, a table in which we celebrated the meal, the Passover meal of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they loved the beauty of the cathedral. They would talk of the beauty of holiness, by which they meant the holiness of beauty. The psalmist talks of the beauty of holiness, but the superstitious idolaters mean the holiness of beauty. Now, I'm all for beauty, but beauty is not in and of itself holy. But holiness, why, that is beautiful indeed. <laughs> You've got to get the words the right way around, haven't we? Well, 
objects take on meanings for people. It's understandable in one sense, it's the way we are as creatures, but it just means our superstition, our natural religion can find beads and trinkets and pictures and balloons and candles as being important, even books, even the Bible. Would you put an old Bible in the garbage truck? What about the Koran? See, the book itself has become for some people in some ways profoundly religious. It's something that you you can't stand higher than, you can't put anything on top of. But the book is just paper and ink. That's all it is, paper and ink. The words of the book are the words, but the paper and the ink is just paper and ink. The truth is, when people turn away from the Creator, they don't turn to nothingness. They turn to creation, especially even of themselves or their own creations. They turn to creation and foolishly they worship the creature instead of the Creator. It's the pattern as old as Adam and Eve and as common around the world today. And the foolishness of worshipping the creatures, the foolishness of it is <laughs> people think they're wise and clever when they do it, when they worship the idols that they have made. But I've only really spoken about the first half of the commandment. In fact, I've only read the first half of the commandment. Do you remember there's a second half to it? There's a second half which, well, has an explanation of the first and a warning about what happens when we break this commandment and a wonderful reassurance about the nature of God. So let me give you the whole commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See the explanation? For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The word Lord there is in the uppercase because the Hebrew says, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Now, we generally see the word jealousy as a bad thing, don't we? It's an evil, distorting kind of emotion. When you get jealous of a person, you, you stop thinking rationally or truthfully. And when she smiles, she must have a lover. She didn't smile, she must have a lover. <laughs> Once you get to that kind of jealousy... It doesn't matter what you see, you will see everything through the eyes of jealousy. But jealousy can be a positive thing. I mean, it is right that we should be jealous for our marriage. It's not right to be saying, well, my husband's committing adultery, but hey, well, that's nothing, you know, boys will be boys, it really doesn't matter. Of course it matters. If your marriage matters, it matters. If you matter, it matters. The, the word translated jealous is the same word for zealous, or if you like, being passionate. If you value something, if you love something, then of course you'll be zealous for it. And you should be, because it matters. 
And so marriage matters, and we should be zealous to protect our marriages. God says that he will not tolerate an alternative in the first commandment. And here in the second commandment, he won't tolerate this misrepresentation of himself, a misrepresentation which is, again, an alternative God because it's not the true and living God. But notice the warning. It's intergenerational. The third and fourth generation will suffer as a result of this because to worship God using idols is to hate God. And if you hate God, the consequences will flow for generations to come. Now, we by and large don't like this little bit. Try to avoid it a bit. Because we Westerners are such individualists. I should take responsibility for my sin, and you should take responsibility for your sin, and my children shouldn't be punished for anything that I do. And there is a truth to individualism. It's reflected in the book of Ezekiel. But... There's also a great lie in it, because we're not ultimately individuals. We are the product of our parents. We are part of the family of humanity. And we inherit from our parents all kinds of good things and all kinds of bad things. And we bequeath to our children all kinds of good things and all kinds of bad things. A proper understanding of humanity is not to see individuals but to see individuals in relationship with their family. And so the reason I'm an Australian is because of decisions made several generations ago by my great-great-grandparents to leave where they came from to come here. The reason we have our wealth that we have is nearly always a matter of inheritance. The success we have in education is most likely contributed to by our parents. I mean... The great index and indicator of future success educationally is much more connected to the family background than it is to which school you go to. But there are bad things as well. The children of the alcoholic suffer. And the children of the gamblers suffer. The children of the drug pushers suffer. The children of poverty suffer. Bad decisions made by parents have consequences to children and to grandchildren. It just goes on spiralling. Divorce is one of the key indicators and factors in the growing divorce of children and grandchildren. It takes something like the gospel to stop the spiral of intergenerational sin and judgment. And so there's this great warning. If you turn away from the true and living God to worship by idols because you are hating the true and living God, then you will suffer, you and your children, to the third and fourth generation. But thirdly, notice the reassurance at the end of the commandment. For he goes on to say that God is the God who shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep his commandments. Just as you're bequeathing hatred towards God with the consequence of it, you bequeath love towards God and the consequence of it to your children. And God's grace and God's mercy goes to thousands. So here's the commandment about idolatry. The Bible has a lot to say about idolatry. The nations, they are all seen as idolaters. Idolatry is the normal means by which people 
worship their gods. The gods aren't the true and living God. Their life is lived without the revelation of God's word. Their desires for religion perverted and twisted by false gods and by the false means of worship. But Israel, Israel who had the word of God, who knew the true and living God, Israel also turned to idols. Uh, not just the idols of the nations, they did turn to the idols of the nations, to the Canaanites, the, the Baal worship, but they even tried to worship Yahweh by idols. I mean, do you remember uh, the golden calf event? There's Moses up the mountain receiving the commandments and the people get tired of waiting for him to come down. And so they make from their jewellery a golden calf and they have a great celebration. But the great celebration is a feast to Yahweh. Here they've got Yahweh represented as a golden calf. Yahweh represented as a bull. Don't they know anything of Yahweh that they would represent him in that fashion? You see how much it's a misrepresentation. But what's even more painful, in a sense, is this was their wedding night. Here was the bride committing adultery on her wedding night. For Israel was to be the bride of God, but she worships a false god. You say, but it's Yahweh, I'm saying this. It's such a false view of God that it's not Yahweh at all. And so in Exodus 32, 33, we find the anger of God and the anger of Moses and the mediating work of, of Moses, working kind of like a, a marriage counsellor trying to appeal to God to have mercy and to warn the people of what is done. It's a fascinating little passage in the book of Exodus. I'll give you another case. Remember the case of, of the bronze serpent. They looked to it and were rescued in the times of Moses. But then centuries later in the days of Hezekiah, they'd come to be worshipping it. And so Hezekiah had to break it up and to destroy it to stop people worshipping the bronze serpent. That which saved in one generation was condemning in another. Or even the temple. You know, God's house. The people in Jeremiah's day thought they were safe because they had God's house. There's no way that God will allow his house to be destroyed. But notice what Jeremiah says, or God says. It's in Jeremiah 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, God wants us to live in obedient trust of him, not in trust in a building. But one of the most important things the Bible has to say about idolatry, I, I haven't really mentioned yet, and it comes back to paying taxes to Caesar. I told her earlier about it, didn't I, about Jesus' question. He asks the question, whose image is this? That little word image, it's the word icon. Whose icon, whose idol, whose image is this? Well, they say Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. It's Caesar's, give him. But notice the second half of what he says. And give to God what is God's. 
Well, what is God's? What is it that is God's that I'm supposed to give to God? I mean, here is Caesar's image, so that's clearly that's clearly Caesar's. Where is God's image? Ah, yes, that's right. We are in God's image. We were created in his image. Hear the implication of Jesus' words? It's the inference you're supposed to draw from them. I'm to give to God his image. For we represent him on the earth, living, speaking and ruling, not like any statue. For God has made in his image something infinitely more able than anything we could ever make in our image. And through our sin, we are distorted and we misrepresent God too because we are not loving and kind and just and true as we should be. We are in his image, but it is a very distorted image. But even that distorted image shows us what we should be giving to God, namely our very selves. But when Jesus comes into the world, we see a man who is without sin. We see a man who is the perfect image. Indeed, Paul says in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the beginning of Hebrews talks about Jesus as being the bearer of the very imprint of God's nature, the one for whom, by whom, the whole world was made, who upholds it by his word of power. Now, what we see in Jesus is the image of God. So one of the earliest descriptions of people becoming a Christian is the one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. My friends, we must turn from idols to serve the true and living God while we wait for his son to rescue us from the judgment that we rightly deserve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son into this world that we could see your true image in him. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for his sacrifice for us that our idolatry can be forgiven and your mercy extend to thousands who love you and keep your commandments. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this new podcast from Philip Jensen and Two Ways Ministries. Philip will be bringing to you new regular episodes on a variety of topics and current issues. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with his latest. Thank you.